0: I never cared much for moonlit skies I never winked back at fireflies But now that the stars are in your eyes I'm beginning to see the light I never went in for afterglow Or candlelight on the mistletoe but now when you turn the lamp down low, I'm beginning to see the light. Used to ramble through the park, shadow boxing in the dark. Then you came and caused the spark. That's a four-alarm fire now. I never made love by lantern shine. I never saw rainbows in my wine But now that your lips are burning mine I'm beginning to see the light
1: the day
2: Thank you
3: Good morning. Uh, My name is Melissa Afolter, and my pronouns are she and her. I'm a member of your Board of Trustees, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to worship with us at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia this morning. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we in Columbia reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, minister, as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. Much appreciation goes out to all the lay leaders and volunteers whose incredible efforts and dedication help keep us all connected. Whoever you are, whatever you're, wherever you're from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. WE PARTICULARLY WELCOME ANY GUESTS JOINING WORSHIP THIS MORNING. WE ENCOURAGE YOU TO FILL OUT THE VISITOR FORM IN THE LOBBY OR ONLINE AND CONNECT WITH US, um, WITH OTHERS IN THE VIRTUAL SOCIAL OR IN-PERSON SOCIAL HOUR AFTER THE SERVICE SO THAT WE CAN MEET YOU AND WELCOME YOU. AND finally, FOR THOSE ATTENDING WORSHIP IN OUR SANCTUARY AT THE OWEN Brown INTERFAITH CENTER THIS MORNING, PLEASE TAKE A MOMENT TO SILENCE YOUR CELL PHONES AND OTHER ELECTRONIC DEVICES. WE HAVE A FEW ANNOUNCEMENTS TODAY. Um, This past fall, UUCC's climate team, in collaboration with the Cradle Rock Children's Center and Community Ecology Institute, designed and built a nourishing garden near our Obic playground. Community Ecology Institute generously provided us with the plants, raised beds, soil, and mulch. Everything but the fence. The cost of the fence is $3,600. Can you make a donation? The fence will be paid for if 36 families donate $100, or 72 families donate 72 I could go on, the math just keeps going. Um, stop by the green table in Sanctuary B after the service to learn more and to make a donation. Thank you very much. And while you're in Sanctuary B, swing by the script table and purchase gift cards. Uh, we hope to see you today at 4 o'clock for our monthly Black Lives Matter vigil by the mall in Columbia. Join us to give public witness to the problem of anti-black racism in our neighborhood, nation, and world. Bring your own signs if you have them. And last, One World Coffee House invites you to hear modern troubadour and multi-instrumentalist Matt Nicoa on Saturday, January 21st at 7 PM, right here in Sanctuary C. Between his piano chops, charismatic stage presence, and heartfelt originals on guitar, prepare to be amazed. tickets can be purchased at the door or in advance on UUCC's website for in-person or streaming video attendance.
4: Thank you.
5: Good morning, UUCC, and guests and friends here with us virtually or here in the room. It's great to see a number of you I haven't seen in a while. Some new faces, some new friends, and some of you I saw just last Sunday. It's good to be with you. My name is Paige Getty. I use the pronouns she, her, and hers, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to serve as minister here of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. Just a couple housekeeping notes. If you'd like to follow along in an order of service, please use the QR code you're going to see on the screen. Um, we provide that electronically so you can follow along on your own mobile device. For those of you here in the sanctuary, if you need a hearing assistance device, those are available from the tech booth in the back. That team would love to see you. And if you are a guest, as Melissa mentioned, we'd love for you to complete the visitor form, either in the lobby or online, so that we're better able to stay in touch with one another throughout the week. We will honor personal joys and sorrows later in the service today, so if you have something you'd like shared with the community, please write it in the book at the back of the sanctuary or send it by email to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. And just a couple words of thanks to Michael and Tom for the special music today, and the tech team back in the tech booth for handling all our tech needs there, to the ushers and greeters and the whole hospitality team. And this morning, extra special thanks to Michelle Guerra, who's up here on the chancel with me. Michelle is serving as our worship associate today because we're in the process of reviving our dormant worship associates program and training new worship associates, both to assist in services throughout the year and to be responsible for them whenever I'm absent. So thank you, Michelle, for taking this seat for the first time in a long time. Today, we're celebrating questions. Not just sentences with a particular kind of punctuation at the end of them, but questions that are expansive, maybe unexpected, questions that draw us out of our habitual thinking and open us to experience the world in new and deeper ways. The service is inspired in part by some work that the congregation's board of trustees has been doing in recent months, and in part by the book of questions by poet Pablo Neruda. This collection is 74 poems, all of which are composed entirely of questions. For example, this is the English translation of poem number one. Why don't the immense airplanes fly around with their children? (laughs) Which yellow bird fills its nest with lemons? Why don't they train helicopters to suck honey from the sunlight? Where did the full moon leave its sack of flour tonight? The poems in this collection, the questions, are whimsical, sometimes evocative, sometimes completely nonsensical. And as the translator suggests in his introduction to the book, they invite us to sit with images and sounds rather than flee farther into our rational minds. They encourage the imagination to quietly reawaken to the possibilities of wonder and awe. Unitarian Universalists have a reputation and sometimes are even ridiculed for enthusiastically embracing questions. Today, we're going to celebrate that reputation. (laughs) So I invite you now to take a steadying breath. Bring your body and your mind and your spirit into this space. And let us inquisitively worship. Will you now rise in body or in spirit? We're going to join our voices in singing the fire of commitment.
6: Associate in training and we're gonna light the chalice as a the symbol of universal symbol of our faith. If I could get Helena up to help light the chalice. Thank you. by David White. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of dry leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. And now we will read our Congregational Covenant. If you will rise, body your spirit. Strengthened by our common humanity. Inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and
2: spirits,
6: to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of human power. And now I invite you to take a moment to greet those at service today, whether you are physically here or dialing in remotely, if we could all greet our neighbors. Good morning. Good morning.
2: Good
7: morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see
6: you.
2: Hey, Judith. Hello.
0: Oh, Hello, Judith, oh, Good,
2: good to, to see you. you. Hi, Diane. see you. see Hello, Diane. Hi, Hi. I'm glad to see you. 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 I'm glad to
7: see
0: you. I'm glad
2: to see
0: you. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to 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 be here. See you
2: Hi. Oh, Hi. Hi, Carol. Hello,
1: Mary
2: Fruit. Hi Anthony. Good to see you all. Hello, Mark.
8: Good morning. My name is Kelly Daniker, my pronouns are she and hers, and it is my joy to serve as the religious education assistant at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. Um, I'm going to invite the kids to come down. I see we have quite a few today, which is pretty exciting for me after the new year. So you are invited to come on down. has got a new hat this morning. Oh, you guys can come right over here. Come right over here with me. Yep. Come right over here. Delilah, good morning, good morning. <laughs> So when I was young, probably, maybe, uh, maybe Teddy and Gigi's age, uh, you are good to see you, I remember sitting with my older brother who was doing some math homework. Now as a young child who had only ever experienced basic math, I was shocked to see that the answers to the equations that he was trying to solve were in the back of his textbook, <laughs> right? In that moment, as a person who has always struggled with math, I could not wait to get to the math classes where they apparently gave you the answers. (laughs) When I expressed this to my brother, he said, actually, having the answers doesn't help. When I finally got to the math classes that gave me the answers, I realized very quickly that he was right. Having the answers did not help. The real work was in a series of questions that I had to ask myself before any answer that I would find would have any value. So raise your hand if you have asked any questions this morning. Has anybody asked a single question today? Right, you have all those questions? All right, how many questions do you think you've asked this morning? Yeah, anybody have a guess at how many they've How many do you think?
2: rainbow
8: cat? Uh-huh. Is that right? So that's a cup, that's like three things that you were sort of questioning and talking about. Anybody else have an idea of how many questions? How many do you think? I I was I, I
5: was worrying a little bit this morning. So I, I asked
8: probably upwards of ten. Ten questions? That sounds like a reasonable amount. Anybody else? What do you think? How many? Zero. Zero questions? On the other end of the scale, how many did you ask, Helena? One question this morning. How many for you, Ingrid? About five five questions. (laughs) (laughs) Marine biologist, oceanographer, explorer and author Sylvia Earle once said, the best scientists and explorers have the attributes of kids. They ask questions. They have a sense of wonder. They have curiosity. Who, what, where, why, when, and how. They never stop asking questions. And I never stop asking questions, just like a five-year-old. One of the things I love best about our younger congregants is their capacity to ask questions. They are unafraid of not knowing the answer. As we age, we lose some of that fearlessness. We shy away from asking questions. We come to value answers over curiosity. So this morning, I'm going to be much like that math book that gives you the answers. And I'm going to ask you to think of all of the possible questions for each answers. For us this morning, there are no wrong questions. Your work, is to be as curious as a five-year-old. And if you are on Zoom, I invite you to type your questions into the chat. So, for example, ooh, 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 shh, shh, time to be quiet. So, for example, if the answer is, the moon would explode, a possible question would be, what if you throw a ninja star in the air? What if you sent a rocket into the sun? What if you ate all the chocolate in the world? So your next answer is, it would rain crayons. Ace has got a question. What is the question, Ace? What if you spent a bunch of wax in the sun? Right, Ingrid. What's your question? What would happen if our tornadoes sucked up all the crayons in a crayon shop? Fantastic hand raise. What's your question?
7: What if people made intergalactic Crayola crayon factories?
8: What if people made intergalactic Crayola crayon factories? Fantastic. Helena, one more question. Do you have a question? We can come back. (laughs) Then we'd have to send crayons up and then they'd come back up. So if we could send crayons up, right? What would happen if we could send them up? All right, here's one for everybody else out here. The answer is no one would drive a car. No one would drive a car. Anyone? Oh, in the back, yes. If everyone was on, no one, we hope no one would drive a car. What do you have? What's your question? Right, what would happen if an animal would drive a car? Maybe no one would drive a car. All right, uh, let's go Ingrid, one more. So what if everyone was driving airplanes instead of cars? All right, Ted, I'm gonna come to you first for our last one, which is, we would wear shoes on our hands. Oh, can you give me one for this thing? Um, Helena, what's your one for? We, uh, shh, shh, shh. we would wear shoes on our hands. Right, what's your question? What if no one could come out of a handstand? What if no one could come out of a handstand? All right, one more down here. What if he which places? Say that one more time?
7: What if
5: enhance
8: places? Did anyone get that? Um, oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah, one more. Oh, no. Just give me one question for this one. Right, well, that's more of an answer. You got you one for this, give me one more for that. Number vanished. Right, but that's not all. No, one. Oh, no, one. This morning, this morning, may we all ask questions with the fervor of a five-year-old. May our curiosity make us fearless. Please join me in singing our children to class. You ready to come down? Come on. You ready to come down?
6: Today is the second Sunday of the month, and it is customary for us to donate this offering to a nonprofit or a group that does excellent work in our community and the world. This Sunday, we will be hearing from Miriam Kambadi about the work Rise Against Hunger does. Welcome, Miriam.
4: Hi, everybody. Um, Hi. Hi. I'm pleased to introduce Rise Against Hunger they are a nonprofit based in North Carolina celebrating their 25th anniversary. UUCC has been partnering with them by hosting a hands on social action meal packaging event annually. A lot of you have participated in it and know how much fun it is. Rise Against Hunger works in countries throughout Africa, Asia, Central, and South America. Uh, they focus on supporting school feeding programs, elder care programs, vocational um, training programs emergency relief by sending food into crisis-stricken areas, areas stricken by drought, floods, political conflict, Um, and they also assist by um, helping with income-generating activities. This part, I thought, was particularly cool. This includes bolstering crop production by teaching improved improved agricultural um, knowledge to farmers. They assist with business skills and also help farmers to grow high-yield crops. They are also supporting fish and livestock production. I have personally seen how important this can be in previous work before I had kids going to Malawi. I would see um, uh, livestock production with chickens and ponds, and this uh, is a way to help diversify uh, nutrient uh, deficient diets and also to help uh, increase incomes. Um, So they are hoping that in three years they can help hundreds of thousands of households with the knowledge and skills to become more food secure. They have packaged over 521 million meals, and in 2021 alone, 17 million meals were packaged, serving about 2.7 million people. There's a nice video on the website that I encourage you to uh, look at. There's two videos showing the journey of the food from the time you package it how it works, what you'd be doing as a volunteer, how it gets packaged, how it gets put into the pallets, and then ultimately gets delivered to Africa, wherever it's going. The next person to actually touch it after you package it here is somebody on the receiving end. They open it, they cook it, and they serve it. And a lot of kids are benefiting by staying in school. So that's a pretty cool video. It's about a three minute video. So we have been working with them since 2015, but with a break during COVID years. Our last time was 2019. We started packaging 10,000 meals per per year in UUCC, but with generous and increased funding here at UUCC, we have doubled our efforts and we are now packaging 20,000 meals. So we did this last time in 2019 with about 100 UUCC volunteers. We packaged 20,000 meals. This year, our event will be held on Saturday, February 25th at 2 p.m. We have a goal again to package 20,000 meals uh, to achieve this, we still need to raise about $1,000. We currently have $6,700. We need $8,000. So we're almost there. Um, any additional money that we raise today will be saved as seed money for next year. So um, please consider donating to make this happen. And for, I noticed there are a lot of people that are Zooming in virtually. If you're interested in this, please email me. Uh, you can find my name on the order of service. It's M. mkambadi at hotmail.com and I will give you the link to donate because if you donate generally on the website it just goes to their general funding it doesn't come to to the money earmarked specifically for UUCC to help us in our mail packaging so definitely contact me so also please consider uh, coming to join us we have about 50 people signed up so far And we could really use about another 30 or 40, so please contact me. I will send you the link to register as it's required, and um, therefore we can also keep track of our numbers. We have about uh, 90 people we can take. So this is a two-hour event. It's high-energy, fun-filled. We package rice, dried vegetables, millet, and sorghum. And it comes up, ends up being in bags like this. Um, This is a really fun event for anybody, even for families with children ages 6 and older. They should be accompanied by their parents, but it really is for all ages, and you do not have to be a child. This is also a good event for youth that need community service hours. I'll be happy to sign off on any forms. So again, the event is February 25th at 2 p.m. We need more volunteers. We also need money. Um, Please contact me, mkambadi at hotmail.com. And I think that's all, thank you.
6: Thank you for coming to UCT today and the important work that you do. While we listen to some music, I invite you to be generous with your contributions and the sharing of your abundance. Please use the instructions for donating that will show up on the slide and the offering will now be freely given and gratefully received. Words of William O'Daly from the 2001 introduction of his translation of Pablo Neruda's The Book of Questions. Pablo Neruda's passion lay in improvising on essential rhythms of perception to reveal unspoken and unspeakable truths. Neruda developed a radical trust in the quest to know himself. He routinely set aside what he knew long enough to rediscover the secret, an enduring mystery, in another cadence and through other eyes. In the book of questions, Neruda integrates the wonder of a child with the intellectual and emotional life of an adult. While he craves the clarity rendered from an examined life, he refuses to be corralled by the rational mind. To the 320 questions that compose the 74 poems of this sequence, no rational answers exist. Rather, the poems present a reflective surface on which we can discern the workings of our minds and our hearts even as each successive question opens onto the larger world. Ridding our daydreams of hypothesis and certainties, we become free to listen and exist where we are. We might then encounter the value of a question posed by the Sufi poet Rumi in the 13th century. How far is the light of the moon from the moon? And we might understand why he, after receiving no answer, turned to the moon itself and asked, where is God? When we sit, or when we run in place, with images and sounds rather than flee farther into our rational minds, the imagination quietly reawakens to the possibilities of wonder and awe. In this state, we may ask our own unanswerable questions and might come to find, reflected in ourselves, the world beyond mind and sight. These poems, more so than any of Neruda's other work, remind us that living in a state of visionary surrender to the elemental questions, free of the quiet desperation of clinging too tightly to answers, may be our greatest act of faith. Neruda believed the inner quest was never ending, that on some level we learned what was forgotten so that we might learn it again.
5: Thank you, Michelle. Sometimes, says poet David White, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you. With tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere, but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now, and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. Sometimes you come to a place. 20 years ago this month, it was the end of January in 2003, I visited Columbia, Maryland for the first time. I was being considered as a candidate for the position of minister in this congregation and I came to interview with the search committee that weekend. Eventually that committee would recommend me as the ministerial candidate and I would return to Columbia in the spring to be introduced to the congregation and for us to share a week together to determine whether we were going to embark on this new relationship together. During that spring visit, I led worship on two consecutive Sundays. Now, honestly, I do not remember a whole lot of detail about either of those services. But on the first Sunday, I preached a sermon that was titled, I think, Certainty Has Its Privileges. Following the advice of mentors and colleagues, I had chosen to deliver a sermon that would reveal some things about me, about where I was coming from, what was my theological approach, what the congregation could expect from me if they called me as their minister. So that morning, I talked about coming into Unitarian Universalism out of a conservative Southern Christian church, one in which I was not expected to ask a lot of questions. Instead, that institution existed in large part to provide answers to big questions Who is God? What happens when we die? What is sinful? There was a book available to us that contained answers to those questions. There were authority figures to explain if that book was a little bit confusing. And I didn't have to wonder. I didn't have to wrestle. I didn't much have to work things out for myself. Not much was asked of me except to follow the rules. Now, I do know now that there was and still is a lot more nuance and diversity of opinion and belief in that church. But as a child and a teenager, that's not what I perceived there. So in that first sermon here at UUCC, I spoke about the choice to convert, to be a Unitarian Universalist where I would be expected not to accept easy or simple answers to those big religious questions, but to embrace the realities of paradox and ambiguity in this life to be a Unitarian Universalist, where we would work out together in community, to work out together in community of religious seekers, what is right or wrong, what is just, what is important. Certainty has privileges, I asserted that morning. And yet here I've chosen to invest myself in a religious movement that doesn't offer such certainty. Instead, it offers companionship and stories and wisdom from a variety of traditions to inform the journey. Later during that candidating week, I had one particular interaction that still stands out for me. A congregant scheduled time to talk with me about what they'd heard me say in that sermon. particularly about their concern that I seemed to lack conviction. (laughs) I know you, well, some of you knew me then, but not all of you did. They wanted to know, how do you ever take a stand on anything if you're embracing paradox and ambiguity all the time? Honestly, it was a legitimate concern. And even though at the time I felt a little disconcerted to be challenged so directly by somebody whom I hoped to serve as a minister, that challenge has lived with me ever since. And that person, they're no longer here among us. We grew to have a strong relationship that challenged growth in both of us. We, over the years as the congregational covenant that we would adopt a year later, articulates, we struggled together on our spiritual journeys, they and I did. And I still struggle to verbalize my understanding of the difference between being certain and being convicted or having convictions, even though I know there's a difference. Certainty limits curiosity. Shuts down conversation. Certainty has decided this is how things are. Leaves no room for new information and insight. No flexibility for evolving thought, for growth. Conviction, though, insists this is a matter of great importance. It deserves your attention, even if we lack certainty about its form, its details, its expression. I'm convicted, for example, about the fact that white supremacy culture has shaped our lives and our institutions here in America. It's important to confront and dismantle the impressions and injustices that it has perpetuated even though I'm not fully certain always, maybe ever, about the most effective way to do that dismantling. Conviction insists this is a matter of importance, important enough to remain vigilant, to stay engaged in the messiness of it, to make mistakes and learn and grow, and not to congratulate myself for having arrived with the final answers. I experienced this relationship between certainty and conviction in parenting, too. As many of you know, I, with Graham, am parenting two children who will soon be 13 and 17. Years ago, when they both were in elementary school or younger, one of them asked a question about ghosts. And the other was very quick to respond. There are no ghosts. Ghosts aren't real. And I, overhearing this conversation, because of course it was happening in the car, and they were behind me, in that moment, I had the presence of mind to realize that my strongest conviction here lies in the fact that I don't want to dampen the sense of wonder and awe and mystery about the world in these children. So I didn't say, yeah, I don't believe ghosts are real either would have been a true statement, but it's not what I chose to say then. Instead, I said, well, I've never seen a ghost, at least as far as I'm aware, but that doesn't mean they're not real. Who knows, really? And so much of parenting in my experience has been been about living in that tension between my own sense of certainty and my convictions about what these children might need from me as their parent. It would probably be a lot simpler to embrace a parental authority that declares, these are the rules, this is how things are, how the world works, please fall in line. Not that that would necessarily work, but it appeals. (laughs) And instead, the perpetual challenge, which I embody with widely varying degrees of effectiveness from one day to the other, is to be the voice of uncertainty. Are you sure? Is that the only way to look at the situation? Hmm, what else might be going on there? What options are available to us? Certainty risks arrogance and rigidity and frailty. Whereas conviction in my experience holds a greater capacity for humility and wonder and awe for presence. That's why I'm enamored of William O'Daly's words at the end of what you heard from Michelle a few minutes ago in his introduction to the book of questions. Living in a state of visionary surrender to the elemental questions, free of the quiet desperation of clinging too tightly to answers, may be our greatest act of faith. And I'm enamored of poet David White's suggestion that there are questions that can make or unmake a life, questions that have patiently waited for you Questions that have no right to go away. In the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing more from the Board of Trustees and other UUCC leaders about engaging in a process to update and better express our core congregational values, our mission, what are our ends. I hope you'll say yes when you're invited to participate In recent months, the board has been preparing for this endeavor by working to articulate a single powerful question that will inform the small group discussions that will be at the heart of this process in February and March. Writing this question has not been a simple task. In fact, it's not even done yet. Hours of conversations, dozens of emails have been exchanged in the effort to use language and imagery that will be evocative, forward-looking, visionary but not too lofty, realistic but without impeding the imagination, a question that draws us out of the habits of our thinking while remaining grounded in our values and our convictions, and in the rational realities of our existence. It's not been a simple task, and it's not yet a completed task, as I said, because these leaders recognize the value of a good, powerful question. It's what our Unitarian Universalist tradition teaches, too, that it is faithful to engage with the world with an attitude of inquisitiveness and curiosity partnered with reason. It's faithful to humbly acknowledge that there's way more that we don't know, not only about the universe overall, but about our own existence, than what we do know. And as we're going to sing in our next hymn in a few minutes, even to question, truly is an answer. Our faith, our lived experience, our engagement with the world is invigorated when we ask questions that spark our imagination, perhaps leading to even more questions, rather than posing only questions that are predisposed to tidy certain answers living in a state of visionary surrender may be our greatest act of faith. My favorite line of our congregational covenant is that we promise to struggle together on our spiritual journeys. We do not pretend that this world is orderly and predictable because we know that it is messy and surprising and magical and difficult Often the journey does feel like a struggle, but we promise not to abandon one another on that journey. We promise to struggle together. And so we are going to be asking questions as a congregation about who we are and how we are to be in the world. All of us, engineers and mystics and artists and agnostics and theists and scientists and teachers, We're all going to, together, illuminate the way forward, asking ourselves first not what are we already certain of, but where do our deep convictions lie? And as the poet suggests, what questions are encouraging us to stop what we are doing right now? What questions have? no right to go away. I hope we'll all allow the space we need for those questions, both for ourselves as individuals on a spiritual journey, and also for us as a community of people together on that journey. And may we be free of the quiet desperation of clinging too tightly to particular answers to those questions. Amen. Will you rise now and join in singing? We're going to sing two verses of the hymn We Laugh, We Cry.
6: of sharing our joys and sorrows is a custom in our congregation where one can publicly and openly share a significant meaningful event that has deeply touched their life. As I read the joys and sorrows, we will listen deeply and lovingly. We are made mindful of the sacredness of the ritual when we cast a stone in the bowl of communal water. The ripples it forms symbolize how our lives touch one another. During the music meditation that follows, those of you who are in the sanctuary are welcome to stop a st- drop a stone silently.
5: I've placed one more stone in our bowl of water to honor those things that you are holding unspoken for whatever reason. Maybe they're too fragile right now or you don't even have the words, but still you are held in our embrace. Will you join me for a moment of prayer and reflection? Holy Spirit of love, of life, that which inspires our sense of wonder and awe and curiosity. May we be nourished by all that is this life, nourished and held in our grief as we say farewell to beloved siblings. Nourished in our worry and fear for those who are facing hard life choices ahead. Nourished in our celebration of long lives and family gatherings. Nourished as we continue to work in the world to bring about justice and peace for all. Let us share a moment of quiet stillness that all our prayers may be known within. Blessed be. Amen. our service comes to a close, will you rise in body or in spirit? Following the benediction, we will sing together the benediction response that you'll see on the screen. But now as we part from one another, may we carry with us our sense of curiosity and wonder. And let us not cling too tightly. Amen.